I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome, everyone, to the Playing Footsie Show. It's Monday, the 9th of May. Uh, no reason you need to know that particularly, but it does explain why Paul's not here. It's because it's his birthday today. Uh, comments down below how old you think Paul is or is about to be. Uh, and if you see him in the chat, do wish him a happy birthday, uh, albeit from almost a week ago now. But I've got Steve D with me, um, and it's an interesting day in the stock market. How are you, Steve? Uh, yeah, I'm doing all right, Steve. I um, I was I was quite happy to load up my portfolio today after the the weekend's the weekend's quietness. I, I'd seen that um, that crypto had taken quite a beating, and I thought uh, maybe you know what, maybe maybe stocks will do okay. And then at uh, two o'clock, I got the dreaded CNBC notification that the Dow was already down 500 points, uh, and I think. By the looks of it, it seems to have continued. My money incinerator pie is down about 8.5%, and my actual main portfolio, I mean, it's not doing much better. It's down 4.33%, and I would consider that much safer. Uh, yeah, I'm getting uh, I'm getting a kick in uh, at the moment, Steve. But like I say, this is uh, I was explaining this to somebody on Reddit earlier. He was a new investor, and he was very, very frightened, and I basically told him, look, you're in the market now for buying shoes. And if you go into the shoe shop and your your shoes that you want to buy are 50% off and you're going to keep those shoes in a box and not sell them for 20 years, you should be really excited about today. You shouldn't be worried. You should be you should be going out and buying. And, and I, I know I've got that pot that says don't lump it in, Steve, but every day it happens. Every day this happens, it gets closer and closer to being in that portfolio. How about, how about you? Uh, broadly similar, to be honest. My uh, Most of my things are now cheaper than they were at the start of the day. There are... Well, there's one exception, um, I think, and that's Verizon uh, correct at time of speaking. Uh, and both what you and I are seeing there is speaking to something that's basically the theme of this show. Uh, this week, we might be a little bit shorter than we uh, sometimes are, partly because we haven't got a game and partly because all of our portfolio and our uh, show this week is kind of built around one idea that we had. So just for a bit of background as to where this has come from, we record these long form shows and the midweeker usually in one go which is why we're usually wearing the same clothes in any given week it's not just that uh i only own one t-shirt and paul well it is just that paul only owns burgundy things but that mm. happens to be coincidence in this situation but what we were doing last week we were having a bit of a chat in between recording the two just catching a little bit of downtime and we all sort of noticed the same thing going on in the market uh and we thought we would talk about that a little bit uh, we had a good chat and steve and i thought well let's put that together for for this week's show and we filled it out a little bit so we're going to tell you a little bit about what we think to do with the market movements that we're seeing at the moment obviously they're mostly down steve alluded earlier to the fact that his apparently safer looking portfolio uh is faring slightly less well than his kind of more speculative portfolio which is sort of interesting and we think we're seeing interesting things going on around kind of a similar theme. Uh, so we've got some stocks coming up later, stuff that we think we might be interested in buying while the market's doing this and stuff that we think we would not be interested in buying uh, while the market's doing this. That's not because we're making market calls, but basically because we think there are some good opportunities that are starting to come through. Um, 
And while Steve attempts to hang on and not lump it all in, uh, we've been thinking about a little bit of market theory, I guess. So here's our show this week. It's about something called the time value of money. Um, and this is something that I suspect people are going to hear a lot about. It's something that informs our thinking more and less in different kind of economic climates. But here's the basic idea. Steve, if I offered you a choice between a thousand pounds today and a thousand pounds in 30 years time, which one would you choose? At the moment, you'd have to take the money today. A thousand pounds today versus a thousand pounds in 30 years. Steve is dead right. You take the money today. Um, Things might get a little bit different if I offered you, Steve, £1,000 today versus £100,000 in 30 years. Which one would you take now? That's a different story, isn't it? So, yeah, I'm a very patient man, so I'm quite happy to wait for your extra money. Yeah. £100,000, it's worth it to you to wait 30 years. £1,000, it's not. And here's the basic reason for that. Steve kind of gestured at this. There are three things that might get in the way of you taking £1,000 in 30 years that are probably worth it if the amount coming back to you is 100,000. And they are, number one, inflation. £1,000 today is worth more than £1,000 in 30 years because the money will have inflated by that point and it will be worth less than it is now. So any kind of inflation is a reason to take money today over money in the future. The other is interest rates. So if I gave Steve 1000 today, he could invest it at whatever the prevailing interest rate is. And as long as it's something, it's going to be more than £1,000 in 30 years. Uh, And the last is uncertainty basically. Something might happen to me between now and the next 30 years, and the further we get into the future, the more uncertainty there is. It might be that I can't pay him back, that I basically expire, uh, or that something happens that means that that £100,000 I've promised him doesn't come back to him. So for £100,000, it's probably worth him to take it, uh, the risk for 30 years. Inflation is not going to be that bad. Interest rates aren't going to be that high. Uh, And sure, I might die in the next 30 years, but look, there's £100,000 in it if we're wrong. If it's just 1,000 for 1,000, those three risks are not worth it to him anymore. You might as well take the money now, basically, and eliminate that risk. And so changes in these things change the amount that you would want coming back in 30 years' time. If you think inflation is going to be really high and money is going to be basically worthless in 30 years, uh, you should want more money in 30 years for £1,000 now. Uh, Same goes for interest rates. If they're going to be really high and you could get a load of money by investing it now, you should demand more off of me in the future for a 30-year wait time. And the same goes with uncertainty. The more likely it is something's going to go wrong with me, or the more likely you think it is that something's going to go wrong with me, the more you should want to come to you in the future to be compensated for that risk. Basically, what we're seeing at the moment in markets is a big shift in narrative, at least as far as I can see anyway. So it's always the case that if two companies are going to give you the same amount of money after 30 years, you should take the one that's going to give it to you today rather than the one that's going to give it to you in 28, 29, 30 years or so. Last week, I sort of talked about the difference between Kellogg's and Palantir in kind of earning terms. They have similar market caps, or they had when we were talking last week. Kellogg's is going to give you money now, but uh, less of it in the future. Palantir is going to hopefully try and give you more of it in the future, but it's not going to give you anything now. Um, And the question is, How much does getting it soon matter to you? Well, the answer is it depends on inflation, it depends on interest rates, and it depends on the uncertainty of the future for Palantir and the the future for Kellogg's to an extent. So what have we been seeing in the last couple of years for markets? Uh, Easy. We've been seeing low interest rates and apparently transitory inflation. Uh, So the Fed has been saying inflation is going to be transitory. It's not going to last for very long. It's not going to run very high. Interest rates have been really low. 
So the time value of money, i.e. the amount you want in the future, the incentive to take it now, it's been pretty dreadful. Uh, it's been worth, uh, as an investor, buying things that potentially have big earnings in the futures, all the kind of Cathy Woodstocks, uh, stuff like we've talked about kind of Teladoc um, and so on. And just lately, what we've been seeing in the markets is things flipping around. Interest rates have been coming up. Inflation, it turns out, is probably not transitory, or at least the Fed has stopped telling us that it is. And so things with no price earnings ratios are getting poleaxed uh, because all their earnings are out in the future. People want more in the future uh, to not take any money now. And things with very high PE ratios are also getting clobbered uh, because most of their earnings are way out in the future as well. Basically, what we're seeing is the time value of money is starting to come at a premium. Uh, people want money now. And because if, if they're right about inflation being high and staying high and they're right about interest rates being high and staying high, there's an extent to which they're right to do that. Uh, when inflation's low and interest rates are low, that big pot of money out there in the future is worth more than it is when they're higher, uh, for the reasons we were just kind of talking about there. But Steve, you've been looking at a graph that kind of uh, illustrates this. We don't normally do this on the Playing Putsy show, mostly because we kind of have an aversion to looking at lines and graphs because we're not called Paul. But um, what have you been seeing, Steve? Yeah, so um, I'm going to direct everybody to um, the description boxes. So um, wherever you're seeing or, or listening to this podcast, um, um, there's going to be a link to uh, a Twitter account. Um, he's Richard underscore Chu, C-H-U 97. And what Richard does is he, he puts together a graph uh, that he, he quite regularly uh, updates. And it's got uh, 118 names from sort of big tech, big-ish kind of S&P companies and then mixed in with all of the little tech companies that have taken a, a you know a, quite a pasting recently so um, running up the side of the graph is price to gross profit so this is the 2022 gross profit and running along the bottom is the uh, year 21 to year 24 revenue CAGR, um compound annual growth rate I've been calling it average growth rate while we've been talking about it like a moron um, so the idea with this graph um, is essentially that you want to be all the way to the right and as low to the bottom as you can get. And currently uh, on that graph, if you're looking for the cheapest growth stock, essentially uh, using this metric, it's Upstart, uh, which is an interesting company. But I mean, stocks scattered around here is like United Health, um, companies like AMD, companies like Airbnb, Nvidia, Intuitive Surgical, even companies like Cloudflare and Datadog and Crowd. Just so you can get like a broad spectrum of of all of the companies in uh, sort of within this thing. And and Richard updates is quite regular. It's quite an interesting thing to look at to see where your chosen companies or companies that you're looking at sit. In, in relation to um, the companies around it. So one of the things Steve and I just spotted was that uh, Mercado Libra and C, arguably in the same industry, they're pretty much fighting over the same ground at the moment. They're priced very, very similar to each other and are growing at similar rates. So um, that was that was a particularly interesting thing that stood out to us. Um, but yeah, it's worth having a look at this graph and, and Richard's definitely worth a follow. Um, but Steve, what, what jumps out at you the most about the chat? I think what jumps out to me the most about this chart is, again, that time value of money thing. So when I look up at the top left-hand corner, uh, or the things nearest the top left-hand corner, so these are the things that are trading at comparatively high multiples of gross earnings and have comparatively low uh, compound annual growth rates uh, for revenue. 
I'm looking at things that are very familiar names to, I think, a lot of investors. So there's Intuitive Surgical, and there's NVIDIA, and there's Viva, and there's Microsoft just coming down a little bit. And they're sort of clustered around that top left. And I guess what that tells me is at least partly those things aren't trading super cheap uh, compared to anything. And what I think about those things when I compare them to uh, Mercado Libra, Upstart, SoFi, um, and some of the other stuff down that bottom right-hand corner is the companies at the top left are the ones that are, as far as I can see, more profitable. And they're the ones that I think are probably more easily predictable uh, as a result, which tells me that cash now and predictable cash is currently trading at a premium, uh, which arguably it always should be, right? As long as the time value of money is something, uh, you should pay more for uh, money today than money in the future. But even those are the kind of less exuberantly growing uh, things, I guess, one way or another. So that's kind of what I most obviously jumps out at me from uh, this chart, I think. Yeah, one of the other things Richard points out, or is, is sort of keen to point out, is that uh, so out of these 118 names that he's been tracking, 86 of them are down at least 50%, and 64 of them are down at least 70% as well. So this line, this graph over, over time has been, has been slowly coming down, but the growth rates of them have not changed. So all that's happened really is that you've had large um, compression of the multiples. So it's a really, really interesting chart. Uh, we got a lot out of it. I, I would recommend that you spend some time having a look at it and just see where your your companies are uh, in relation to um, you know in, in relation to their growth rates. And and just remember that you know we are still working with the law of big numbers here. That big numbers are harder to improve. Therefore, that the the bigger the company is, it will start shifting to the left. Um, but so long as it stays tight to that median line and you're happy with valuing, you know, growth companies on gross profit, which, uh, yes and no, um, you know, you can get a really good feel for how your growth stock sits in the broader market. Uh, anything else you want to take away from it, Steve, before we shuffle on? It's a great point about gross profit, I think. Um, it's worth noting that, you know, gross profit is not um, free cash or anything like that. Uh, and you will want to pay attention to any company on an individual basis and work out where you think cash is going to end up from the gross profit thing. The reason it's a useful comparison is it does allow you to kind of compare uh, like with like here. Um, and the last thing I guess to note here is that we're not going all Paul Briscoe uh, and saying, here's a line. And if this thing is below this line, buy it. And if this thing is above this line, wait till it comes below this line and then buy it. Uh, basically. Um, it's not quite as straightforward as that. In fairness, Paul doesn't do that. I should stop making fun of him. It's his birthday, or at least it was six days ago. Um, but uh, it is a kind of useful kind of uh, guiding uh, thing here. And it, what this does is at least give you an idea of how things map on relative to one another, I guess. I also quite like the idea of plotting kind of non-growthy, non-tech stocks on here mm. uh, for what it's worth. You would expect them to be very tight to that bottom left corner. Mm. Um, you would expect them to be not very expensive, and not very growthy, uh, and that would kind of make sense. But I, I do like the idea of comparing kind of companies across different sectors using this sort of thing. Hmm. I was just thinking with the non-growthy companies, you probably have to start the revenue at zero, and then the next one would be one, <laughs> and then we might go to seven. But let's not go too high. But yeah, no, I, I agree. It's a really interesting chat. To be fair, Paul, uh, he brought up a point that we we laughed at at the time. Um, but actually, when you think about it, the it's probably something we should discuss. He said, why are they using gross profit? And the answer to that simply is, is that's something that they all have. 
Uh, uh, they don't all have PE ratios. They don't ha all have uh, free cash flow. Um, so gross profit is uh, the only thing really that Richard can use to um, to really show you where they sit in terms of uh, you know how he's choosing to value them. Yep, gross profit is basically the thing furthest down the income statement that you can usefully use for that. I guess strictly you could use price to sales, but gross profit is a little bit more uh, informative. It's not all the way down. There's still plenty more to come out before we get to the that bottom line that you're going to eventually care about. Um, and again, time value of money thing. Some of these aren't going to be net profitable for years yet. And you should factor that into your thinking because we think that's a very real consideration uh, that's worth keeping in mind. Nice chart, Steve. Um, anything else you want to add on that? No, no, that's it. Let's let's crack on. Cool. Um, so looking at this general kind of downward shift in markets then, I guess there's a kind of hierarchy of things getting clattered, and it's in the order that you would expect mostly. We're going to come back to some exceptions at the moment or some ways in which we think this might have kind of gone a bit too far. But broadly speaking, here's what's been happening. Uh, your kind of unprofitable tech, uh, mostly tech, but unprofitable stuff generally, has been getting whacked the hardest. So since the start of the year, Teladoc, which is unprofitable, is down 67%. DocuSign, which I think is also unprofitable, is down about 53%. Uh, and just below that, you have kind of fairly profitable uh, tech companies, but still priced at high multiples. So Salesforce is down by about 36%. Adobe is down about 33%. And below that, you have kind of cyclical things, which are currently in the wrong end of a cycle um, with high inflation and potential recession on the cards. So stuff like Games Workshop in the UK, down 31%, Home Depot down 27%. And then at the kind of bottom end of the hierarchy, I haven't done every sector because it doesn't track perfectly in all these cases, but you have things like consumer staples or boring defensives or steady things like Procter & Gamble down 4% since the start of the year and Walmart down 5% since the start of the year. Both of those will have paid you at least one dividend, by the way, for what it's worth. So you actually probably got a bit of that back uh, in terms of kind of real return. Uh, well, real return would include inflation, but I mean, uh, total return, sorry. Uh, you've probably got a bit of your 4% back off P&G. You, you, know, you might have nicked back a half a percent on that. So you're only down about 3.5% compared to the person who's been holding Teladoc since the start of the year, who has got nothing apart from a 67% hammer. Um, and that's kind of what you would expect, right? This makes a lot of sense, uh, broadly speaking. The further out the things big earnings are, the more they're expected to grow, the more um, rising inflation uh, diminishes the value of that, and the more rising interest rates incentivize you to take the company giving you the cash now, the P&G, the Walmart, the basic defensive stuff. Obviously, there are exceptions, um, stuff like BAE Systems, which is kind of cyclical, but is being nicely pushed along by a favourable uh, political climate for them and unfavourable for well, basically the rest of the world. Um, and Fevertree, which is a staples company that was on a massive multiple uh, for some reason and isn't producing that much cash now considering the price. Uh, those two have uh, gone in opposite directions. So Fevertree, the staple, has been absolutely crushed since the start of the year. Uh, BAE Systems has gone on a nice little run. Um, so it's not true across the board, right? This is company by company, but if you're looking for broad kind of correlations, I had a bit of a look. That's kind of what I'm seeing. The further out something's profits are, uh, or the bulk of their profits are, obviously, the more they're getting hit. And this is kind of exactly why. And this has been happening fairly steadily since the beginning of the year. But last week, we were starting to see some stuff that was getting interesting. So there was stuff that we thought... The question, I suppose, naturally arises for us of, well, when stuff's coming down, how far is too far? Um, or when does it become time to say, 
yeah, look, that was really expensive. And something that's expensive coming down a little bit doesn't make it not expensive anymore. It still makes it really expensive, just not really, really expensive. But there will come a time when we think it's in an area that we're interested in buying it. And when is that? Because neither Steve nor me has the faintest idea about when a stock is going to turn round, more or less. Uh, neither of us, I think, is convinced by our ability to do anything like timing the lowest point on a stock. Um, fairly agnostic about anyone's ability to do it, but certainly not ours. So question becomes, when do we think it's worth it? And the answer for us, I think, is when we think it becomes a better buy than um, some of the other stuff that's available on the market or gets past a certain level of return for us. So we've got kind of four pairs of stocks here, um, some that we think are, are going better than others. And in ways that might be kind of slightly surprising. So, Steve, you were looking at um, a pair of stocks, one which is a kind of growthy stock that's fallen a long way, and one that's a cash now stock that doesn't look that cheap. Kick us off. Okay. Um, so this stock is uh, definitely in the category of one that's uh, a growth stock that it got overvalued, and it's got the kicking that it deserved. But I think it's getting to uh, prices that I find quite exciting. So it's a little bit different, uh, but keen-eared listeners might catch on that I've been looking at the fashion industry recently. And uh, I think I've found another one that I quite like. Um, so the stock in question is uh, Kerrig. It trades as um, under the ticker K-E-R. Uh, you might not have heard of the brand directly, uh, but it's a fashion conglomerate and it owns the likes of, and I know he was only taking the piss out of it last week, but Balenciaga, uh, you know, the high-vis um, construction coat, but it also owns brands like Gucci, Alexander McQueen and Yves Saint Laurent. Um, so, you know, it's got some pretty hefty brands under its uh, under its wing. Um, so it's one of SMT's top 10 holdings. Um, do you remember when it was cool to like them, Steve? Um I, I don't remember when many things were cool, but sure, yeah. Uh, so SMT is currently down 50% from its highs, just by the way. Um, so uh, Kering, it's a, it's a 55 billion euro uh, stock. We're uh, trading on the Paris euro next, so everything's going to be in euros. Um, it's, uh, it's trailing PE, is, uh, and, and this is a stock with high quality earnings, um, is about 17 and a half. And it's about level with the lowest I've seen it. And it pays a tidy 2.62% dividend as well. So it's very much cash today. Um, so looking at its revenue, it, it's growing handily. Uh, in 2018, it managed um, 13.6 billion in revenue. And, and coming through to today, that's grown to 17.6 billion. So 4 billion added. In the law of big numbers, this is this is good growth. Um, and um, this isn't just top line story. It's growing free cash flow too, um, generating almost 4 billion euros of uh, free cash flow last year on 17.5 billion revenue. Pretty good. Um, it's buying back stock. Uh, it planned to take out about 0.5% of its share flow this year. Uh, it actually set that um, target in August, uh, and August prices were a lot higher. So we, may, uh, we, we will see a lot more of the, the share count being taken out. It's down about 43% from its highs. Uh, it's been hit with a, a double whammy of, of rising costs and the West's withdrawal from Russia. Uh, but I'm always on the fence and I like to be an op optimist and I think it can't be like this forever. So I can't tell you it's the bottom because I don't know. But I think we're getting really, really close to a very, very good price. Steve, are you interested in this one? 
I'm interested in a lot of things uh, in this area, actually. I feel for me that this may surprise some people who only uh, listen to the show rather than kind of watching us on either Spotify now or YouTube. But fashion isn't actually something I consider to be within my circle of competence. Um, and as such, I sort of probably swerve around this one. But it's an interesting thought, right? What you have is a kind of growthy thing there that's now trading on the kind of multiple that not so very long ago I would have associated with a reasonably kind of flat uh, sort of thing. So I guess that's an interesting thing to kind of keep an eye on here. There's there's fallen growth things here, but as we always say, when the stock prices come down, that doesn't mean the business has changed. It just means that the, the price has changed here. And I would listen to, I've now got rounds to listening to most of the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting. Buffett's point here, it resonates with me and it's an obvious one and one that I've kind of known all along, but he put it really nicely, so I'm going to do the same thing. The issue isn't so much when it's reached the bottom. The question is, or the issue is, when you're getting enough for your money in return. Um, and hmm. So the question is, how much of the company are you going to get and their future earnings? And if you want more of it for your £1,000 or whatever you're considering putting into it, uh, you should be waiting for that price to come down a bit so you can have a bigger piece of it. Um, but that's an interesting sounding thing, Steve. Anything to compare it to? Um, well, just before, um, I was just going to say the... Um... The thing I would add to it is is that uh, Kering's at the sort of scale where uh, it's generating enough free cash flow that it can always be on top of the newest brand. So if we're worried about um, somebody coming along and making a fancy address than then what they offer, the likelihood is Kering has the cash to take that company out. And uh, it's, uh, it's small enough now that I think it can get away with most, um, you know, most anti-competitive. Um, I think it can get around those. It, it's not... At 55 billion, you, you would never say it's it's completely dominating the market. So I think there's still plenty of optionality there. I was looking through all of their investor presentation and they're, they're taking little stakes in companies all over the place all the time. They're taking their cash and they're buying um, companies making leather products. They're making buying leather suppliers and they're just taking little bits of companies all the time. And you just think that's really sensible. This is a company that isn't just generating free cash flow and saying, look, Here's, here is it all a dividend. We don't know what to do with it. These guys are just giving you what's surplus. And I think that's really important in this industry. And it makes carrying a really, really strong company. If you're going to compare it to stuff, then I guess you'd have to look probably through the Fundsmith portfolio. I think it's Estee Lauder that he buys a lot of. That's in a similar kind of industry. Um, you'd have to try and find out why um, why Terry Smith likes that more than uh, caring, but I'd assume it's got something to do with return on invested capital uh, because that's all Terry Smith does. Um, but yeah, I think it's a fantastic little company, well, big company, trading at a decent price now, and I'm very close, Steve. I'm, I'm very close. I like it. Tell me about your... Um, we were looking up a bunch of stocks for this that we think fit into different categories. Tell me about something that's not growing that you think might now have been got expensive by comparison. Okay. So uh, the one I'm really struggling with is Kimberly Clark. Um, so Steve once famously called it the bum wipe company. Uh, and that's essentially... Oh, it famously is a bit strong here, right? We have, what do we have, 730 <laughs> subscribers or something like that? <laughs> Famous to the people listening. Uh, but that's essentially what it is. So let's not lie to each other. It's a bum white company. Um, but valuation on, on this bum white company is what I struggle with the most. It's a very steady company. Um, it's growing sales organically, about 3%. 
Uh, it's recently become a dividend king, uh, having increased its dividend by about 1% this year, which marks the uh, 50th full year of dividend increases. That does make it a king, doesn't it? I think Aristocrat is 25 and king is 50. Um, yep. And there's some stuff below that as well, if you like it. There's like Challenger and uh, Dividend, I don't know, some other stuff at like 10 years or whatever. But yeah, carry on. Um, so I'm really struggling with its price to earnings today because it's over 27. And for a company that's growing slower than the CPI numbers we're getting worldwide. Um, and I mean, let, let's just be aside. I get that for some income investors valuation is almost irrelevant because... They're just after a regular payment four times a year, and Kimberly Clark should manage that from, from now until eternity. But somebody buying with it a view to selling it later or getting some capital appreciation on it, I don't get it. I don't get why it deserves a 27 PE when it's only growing at 3%. So just as a side note, Steve and I have discussed before that uh, we worry we're in a seesaw sort of market. So that, that growth stocks were going up, so everyone rushes to that side of the seesaw and, and, and we all know how seesaws work when there's more on one side than the other that side goes down and that's what i can sort of see is happening the, the issue is is that everybody seems to have ran across to the other side of the seesaw and they're now buying the slower growing your dividend companies your coca Gold, your kimberly clark your pepsis your utility companies who who some of these are premium brands and, and deserve to trade at a little premium but some of these are trading or nearing a pe of 30 which for the record, is absolutely the way that you should be looking at these companies. These companies should be getting valued on their earnings. They're not growth companies. Um, and a, a PE of 30, I think that's really scary to me. So one of the things I would just point out to people is the S&P is pretty industrial heavy index. One of the ways to look at how um, overvalued it is, is to look at its historic dividend yield. So if that's going up, that's usually a sign that these companies are becoming fairly valued and earnings are increasing and they're throwing off cash at a faster rate than they're increasing in value. So just looking at that metric, how's the S&P done in the last five years? Uh, it's nearly halved. Uh, the dividend yield is uh, from 2% to an average of 1.3%. And that worries me quite a bit. I think you're probably right to worry about that a little bit. Um, I would I would have the same reaction here. And I guess I'd sort of also reaffirm the thought that this isn't particularly a knock on Kimberly Clark uh, as a, a business. I mean, it's not a knock on management. It's not a knock on uh, the inability to grow stuff. If you're in the business of producing bog roll and related products, I mean, how many more of these things are you meant to get into people's hands uh, in a certain way? Your demand is steady. Uh, and it's unlikely to go down significantly in any particular way. But it's also unlikely to go up uh, significantly. I mean, pretty much the only thing I can think that would drive up demand substantially would be population growth, uh, more mm -hmm. or less. Uh, and that, that's basically it uh, from what I can see of these things. So look, saying that Kimberly Clark, uh, which neither of us is doing here, is a, a bad business because it's not growing or it's being poorly run because it's not growing... I don't think either of us would have the faintest idea of what we thought they ought to do to kind of reinvest themselves into uh, making somehow uh, pushing prices or whatever like that. I mean, maybe they could move prices a little bit and generate some growth. But in terms of volume, it's going to be what it's going to be, uh, basically, which means that dividending your money out is probably the right thing to do uh, if you don't have an intelligent use for it because you can't make the market any bigger. Uh, the thing to do is not use it for some unintelligent purpose. The thing to do is to dividend it back out again. Um, so Kimberly Clark is a perfectly good business that would make a lot of sense at the right price. And 
as Steve was saying, if you're the kind of investor who leans very, very heavily on cash today because you're maybe thinking that you're near retirement or something like that and you don't have 30 years to wait for cash to appear, you might just have to take it at the prevailing price. But but in comparison to something like a caring, it looks it looks like a sort of strange choice for an investor with a long-term focus, I guess. That's hmm. roughly your thoughts, Steve? Yeah, well, yeah, well my issue really is, is that uh, their growth is almost completely out of their own hands. Uh, they're literally waiting for sanitation to increase in places they aren't in. And the reason why that's not always a good thing to to wait for is that these things happen very slowly. And when they do happen, there tends to be sort of a, a deluge of companies trying to fill that void, which means that the, the sort of uh, competition or price. Now, Kimberly Clark should prevail in this because it should have the scale to, to do so. But the, the areas we're talking about that don't have sanitation and or, 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 or could do to develop the sanitation, and I mean, we're talking about swathes of Africa here and things like that. They tend to be dictator-led and tend to be anti-American and uh, I would be, you know, it's not beyond the sort of like thinking to think that Kimberly Cat may struggle to even enter those markets or, or a local, uh, a local supplier may be preferred over Kimberly Cat and thus imports be taxed over it. So yeah, it's, 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 I don't like companies where growth is completely out of their hands. And, uh, on this occasion, uh, Kimberly Cat falls squarely in that area and, um, and it just seems really expensive. Yep, that's, that makes sense to me. So what you have then, what we're seeing here with this kind of seesaw story is the kind of uh, slow growing or arguably even not growing uh, very much in real terms company Kimberly Clark is now getting priced more expensively than uh, the fast growing thing caring where higher earnings are in the future. Why? Because kind of cash matters more now, at least that's part of the story, although I guess we both think that's probably gone a little bit too far. Hmm. I mean, here's a pair of UK stocks that I've been looking at where I think probably the same thing is true. Um, Here's number one, which I would probably look to swerve here. Here's Diageo. Uh, Diageo's down 8% uh, since the start of the year in stocks. Has an 87 billion market cap uh, and another 12 billion in debt. So it takes you to close to 100 billion in terms of total liability for the whole thing. Generates free cash of around 2.8 billion. Um, and that gives you a yield of around 3% at free cash. Um, that might be good. That might be bad. That is what it is. Uh, but compare that to something like Rightmove, uh, which has been coming down a bit. It's come down a lot today, but this is before I read the kind of CEO announcement stuff. Uh, that's got a four and a half billion market cap, and it's got 32 million in net cash sitting on its balance sheet, and it has a free cash flow yield of uh, 195 million. So you get just over a four percent return on Rightmove. Uh, so you start off at three percent in Diageo, or you can start off at four percent in Rightmove. Um, which one do you think has the better kind of growthy prospects um, here, the techie thing or the kind of staplesy uh, thing? I would be inclined to think that when I count up the number of earnings reports there are going to be over the next 30 years, uh, the right move one is going to grow by more than the Diageo one. Um, I'm not sure I like Diageo's growth prospects so well, so I would expect a head start in uh, Diageo. I would expect a bigger free cash yield now uh, in an important way. I'm just not seeing that, basically. I'm now seeing that the kind of free cash yield on Rightmove is higher than the free cash yield on um, Diageo. And I think Diageo is a really great business. Uh, it has a lot of brands that I think are good and important. And it's not just nebulous stuff like brands, right? Here's what that means in kind of cash terms. They have about $4.8 billion in property, plant and equipment in terms of fixed assets and stuff. And using that $4.8 billion, they pull in $4.2 in operating income. I mean, so that's pretty much your your entire 
tangible assets um, outlaying a year's operating income. That's pretty good. Uh, I would buy that business at the right price, but I don't think it's at the right uh, price. It's at about 100 billion for the whole thing, and that's quite a lot of times 4.8 billion uh, of fixed assets here. Rightmove is also great for what it's worth, has about 12 million in fixed assets and generates 226 in operating income. But the thought here is I don't particularly want to knock Diageo for anything. I just want to point out that that's held up substantially better this year at the share price level. Rightmove's down 32% compared to Diageo's 8 But I do think that, that the sign for me that that's gone too far is that the yield on what I would consider to be the growthy thing in terms of free cash um, is now higher than the yield on what I would take to be the, the cash machine, uh, basically, or the cash now machine, more or less. So I, I think I'm seeing something that's kind of crossed over there a little bit and come the opposite direction. Uh, you think anything about either of those, Steve? Um, yeah, I mean, right move is a stock that I mean, you've talked about quite a lot. Um, I think the issue that, um, and it's anecdotal, this, um, the issue I have with, um, right move and the thing that's always put me off is i have a few friends who work um uh, in the estate agency um business and, and they universally hate it and i and I, i've never really understood it because as a consumer and somebody who's used right move i love it i think it's excellent that i can see you know i don't have to go on my estate agent's website and try and remember their stupid names and find what you know what what housing stock they have or i don't have to sign up to some emailing list or i don't have to Give them my phone number so they can ring me. Right move. I just put in a bunch of filters that I want to, you know, that I want to look for. And and you know, there's the house. There's a list of houses that I, I want to go and see. I don't, I don't see how it could be any better. Um, but um, so yeah, right move. I think is a is a good company, and and it's coming down in price, which is which makes it more attractive. Um, would you say it's probably one of the most attractive growth stocks on the uk market at the moment i think that's that's not a million miles away from where it is i think i would i struggle to make that kind of claim without having compared it that closely to some of the growthy stuff that i know you're quite fond of actually to be honest so i know you've got an eye on the london stock exchange group on a fairly regular basis and i haven't bothered to compare the two uh, yet but right move is the kind of stock that catches my eye there are a couple of little uh, negatives on it that I don't like, but I think I, I'm never going to find a stock that is perfect uh, for me in any way. The question becomes, do I think it's worth it at these levels? And the answer is yes. But here's a couple of things I'm not a fan of particularly. They've been a buyback heavy uh, organisation uh, over the last decade or so. And this is, to me, interesting. I know you and I, Steve, were discussing the nuances of uh, buying versus printing um, shares. And... We are of one mind here, I think, uh, and that either of these things can be done intelligently or unintelligently uh, for what it's worth. You can absolutely print shares and ruin your shareholders by doing it. Uh, you can absolutely buy back shares and generate real value for your shareholders while you do it. Hmm. Uh, but you can also do the opposite of those things. You can also print shares in a pretty intelligent way, um, in a way that means your share count goes up, but your revenue growth goes up faster. Uh, you would say look, we did the right thing. Uh, okay, there are more shares, but look, we're making so much more money that everyone's better off, uh, all the shareholders and so on. Uh, and you can also buy them back at the wrong time by taking your excess cash and overpaying for them. And Rightmove has managed to push its EPS up, uh, not just by buybacks, but it's up by about 200%, I think, over the last decade, which is pretty good uh, in terms of growth. I 
They've done that in part by lowering the share count. And for a lot of the time over the last decade, that share price has been higher than I would buy it, which makes me think it's hard for me to think that they ought Hmm. to be buying it. In that situation, I kind of feel like the most intelligent use of your cash there is to dividend it out. Uh, If they really feel like there's nothing they can do within the business, uh, and this company doesn't have any debt, so it's not paying off that. Uh, but if there's nothing that's worth acquiring here and your stock is trading at a hundred more than that, 200 or something um, uh, cents on the dollar, uh, to use the American expression here, you buying it back in at 200 cents on a dollar has got to be worth less than you giving it out at 100 cents on the um, dollar. So I'm a little bit wary about that as a buyback move. Um, I am vaguely disapproving in that regard. They've announced a change of CEO. That doesn't worry me too much uh, for what it's worth, partly because it's not sudden, it's not imminent, it's happening in 2023, and there's going to be a process of shifting from one to another. Um, And I don't mind particularly uh, when companies change CEO. I think that how long a CEO has been in a job is a bit like a a share count metric. It can Mm. be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. I know people like to look for CEOs that have been there a long time, but I kind of think that whatever you think of this company as a whole, um, and whether you think it's a good buy or a bad buy or anywhere in between, it divides opinion. Intel is a better company from the day Pat Gelsinger took over as CEO than it was before, even though the day he took over, they now had a CEO who had been there barely any time. I know he'd been at the company before, but I think having the right CEO is far more important than having a CEO that's been there a long time, uh, yeah, one way or another. Yeah, I agree. I was just thinking, uh, so long as they don't get the Zillow CEO in to replace them, um, <laughs> we should be on to something good there. But yeah, I think, um, I guess the only sort of like concern is that I think everybody here knows that the, the property market is running really hot uh, at the moment. And how does right move fair? Um, should the property market uh, have a slowdown or, you know, prices start to decrease? Um, how How does that how does that hurt right move if people uh, for a short or medium term period of time decide not to sell their houses or fall into negative equity and cannot sell their houses? Um, that That's a period that I don't think we've probably seen right move through. I'm not sure if it's old enough. It probably wasn't in the 2008 crash. And I certainly don't know about it from that kind of period of time. Um, so uh, that that's the only sort of worry I have with Rightmove. That's probably the best time to buy the company because Rightmove will just have depressed earnings. It, it wouldn't go bust. It was, you know, when these things happen, unfortunately, um, what you'll probably see in America soon if they go if they fall into recession is the headcounts at places will start getting slashed left, right, and centre. And that's no different with um, the UK. If a sector falls into negative growth, you'll start to see layoffs, and uh, that's what you would see at Rightmove. So. In a time of, uh, of, uh, of, of you know, negative equity or house prices falling or the housing market just cooling somewhat, uh, Rightmove would likely just reduce its headcount, have depressed revenue, but probably still have earnings. And uh, yep. I think that might be the time to buy it. I think the second best time, it might be today. Hmm. I think that's probably true. Uh, Rightmove will go largely as the UK property market um, goes, at least in terms of activity. Uh, anyway... I I feel over the longer term, I think I would probably be okay banking on them. I also feel Mm. like they have a decent competitive position that gives them a bit of pricing power. They generate, last time I looked, about three to one, the number of visits of Zoopla, who are their next biggest competitor. And then there was something that had been set up independently some way behind. So I I would expect them to hold up reasonably well. Their balance sheet is too strong for them to, to outright bust. I mean... That's that's never a guarantee, right? There's always a possibility that someone from Ernst & Young pitches up and turns out they're a wire card. I certainly can't tell you they won't because I haven't seen their books. 
But sort of short of that, um, I feel like this is a, well, I don't feel like, I think by basically looking at their balance sheet, I'm starting to get increasingly frustrated when I hear people saying they feel like stuff. Uh, but I tend to take the view um, that they're unlikely to, to outright bust here. Yeah, um, and of course, uh, there is always the opportunity to expand further overseas. I know they have a European offering, but, you know, start buying up their local the local right moves in, in the various EU countries that you come across. Um, I think especially in you in the EU where you you know you have the passport and rights to move essentially anywhere, uh, a right move over there that encompasses all of the all of the sort of block countries would be um, would be a very good move. Yeah. So yeah, right move is one that's been catching my attention as a thing that is looking like a kind of growth stock that's now come down at a level that, by the way, I value these businesses I consider to be lower than a kind of steady sort of stock, uh, specifically Diageo. But this isn't true across the board. It's not the case that um, cash now is, is beating cash in the future, uh, hand over fist and all over the place. Um, Steve, tell us about something that's bucking the trend for us a little bit here. Yeah, so I've got a I've got a company that's uh, it's it's definitely come down in value. It's come down in value quite a lot, um, but it's something that definitely still isn't cheap. So. I'm going to talk to you really quickly about Snowflake. Uh, Snowflake is the last of what we will call the 20x club. And that is a club of stocks that were trading at um, 20 times enterprise value to sales. Uh, that included companies like Datadog, uh, Cloudflare, and uh, the third one was Zscaler. And um, all of those have fallen under those levels. Snowflake fell under it today. Um, but... The query sort of I'm, I have and the thing I'm going to answer for you is how did it get there? So I'll just tell you what Snowflake does because I think it's quite misunderstood. So it, it's a data management and data interpretation company. Its USP uh, is that it offers unrivaled speed and power. So it allows its users to spec the power requirements needed to complete the task that they're trying to do. After which, they can turn down the requirements and only pay for what they've used. So this allows smaller companies to, to analyze and work their data much more rigorously than before, and it and, and they can remain competitive with their bigger budget rivals who can do this, you know, just out of pocket anyway. So Snowflake runs on top of Azure and AWS uh, and um, Google Cloud as a complementary service, so it's not in direct competition with them. So last year, Snow was a really hot IPO. It it, it went uh, public in the midst of 2021. It was founded by two Oracle employees who have since handed over the day-to-day -day running uh, to establish CEO Frank Slootman. Frank Slootman is well known in the industry for being the driving force uh, behind ServiceNow's growth. He, he turned ServiceNow from a very small company into a very big company today. So Snow has some pretty impressive numbers. Uh, it came public with incredibly high revenue growth, um, the strongest dollar-based uh, net retention rates I've ever seen. I think it was 180% plus. Um, and a business model that was first pioneered by Twilio uh, based around pays you use rather than a flat monthly fee or some, some, some software companies do seat fees. So this is riskier, but it shows that they have really, really high confidence in the model or in, 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 the, in the software. So Snow's IPO was touted to launch at $140. Uh, that price was enough to tempt Berkshire um, to pick up a handful of shares. I, I liked it when people said Buffett. Buffett didn't buy the share. He didn't know a thing about it. Uh, and that looked like an incredible deal, by the way, buying 140 because uh, just six months later, the price was 392. So um, that takes its market cap to uh, just over $120 billion. A price to sale, Steve, do you want to have a guess? Uh, 12? 102. And that's oh revenue, goodness. remember, not profit. 
So yep. now, then and now are very different times. Snow is back at its IPO price and its revenue increases have gone from being 100 plus to 60, which is still fast. Um, but that has slowed quite a bit. And I was looking at its headcount the other day and it's up 60%. And this is very much a cash tomorrow sort of company. This isn't anywhere near making any money for you. I think Snowflake reports earnings this week, uh, so in the week past, um, and I'd hate to be in Snowflake if it misses on earnings. I feel like it, I, at the moment, I, if I cared about the price on my stocks rather than looking at the underlying business, and I want my stocks to go up because I have a plan to sell them in anywhere near the near future, I would probably be doing that seesawing thing away from Snowflake, to be honest, at the moment. I would mm. be running towards something that would pay me a dividend, probably something like Verizon uh, or something along those lines, which I think is kind of okay uh, priced for the time being. But I I mean, I can't even see... I can't see how the number being higher or lower for Snowflake is going to make a big difference here. This feels like one of those stocks that we talked about last week where, look, you're not going to make any money. How, how do I care how much you lose uh, in this quarter particularly? Um, just tell me the general story is on track here. And I think Snowflake is going to find it very hard to tell people that the general mm. story is on track because inflation is high and interest rates are high and uh, everything is basically going wrong uh, in the macroeconomic environment. Mm. So the real question becomes then what is, how much of that's already been priced into a, a kind of falling stock here. And I, it could be either way there, but I would be... I would be nervous if I was a kind of speculator uh, holding Snowflake at the moment. I don't much. I mean, I hold it indirectly, I guess, through Berkshire, who I don't associate as being stock speculators. I associate that as someone taking a view of this is going to produce enough money in enough time and be worth it. Hmm. Um, and they may be wrong for what it's worth, uh, or they might be right. But I think that's what they're thinking, rather than someone going buy this off me because this stock going up. Fair enough. Do you want me to give you a company that you might want to run from Snowflake to? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, so it's another one from Europe that I really, I really do like the look of, and it's called Alstom, uh, A L S T O M, uh, and it trades under the ticker A L O on the Euronex. It's Paris again. And um, do you know what they do, Steve? Uh, they sound like a sort of Berkshire Hathaway stock to me. What do they do? Okay, they make trains or uh, rolling stock, as it's known in the industry. Um, so over half of the high speed and very high speed trains in the world are made by Alstom and I'm here to argue that there's still room to grow and not just because the EU loves trains and, and they really do love trains um, <laughs> Alstom has a market cap uh, of about 8.5 billion so it's roughly one year of revenue in 2021 uh, its forward P is about 11 and it pays a dividend of just over 1% the first thing you see uh, when you look at this stock and you have a look through its, um, through its various financial statements you'll see that shares outstanding has grown by about 55% in the last year and its debt has more than doubled why because it just acquired canadian manufacturer bombardier last year uh, probably something you've heard of steve if you listen to the news i remember there being a massive argument about uh, one of our uh, train companies not getting a, a contract from the i think it was from the tories and we ended up giving it to bombardier um mm -hmm. So they bought Bombardier for cash and stock. The deal was about five and a bit billion euros. The new combined company should generate around 16 billion euros in revenue. So that's a 100% increase uh, and have a combined backlog um, of already placed orders of around 72 billion euros. 
So why is it so cheap? Uh, there's a few reasons, really. Uh, big acquisitions like this are really, really tough to integrate. We're seeing it with um, London Stock Exchange Group and Refinitiv, even more prevalent last week when we were talking about TDOC and Livongo. Uh, and this deal is, is not really faring any better. Make no mistakes, this one is signed and sealed, and it's, a, it's across the line. Um, but it, it's very much in the realizing synergies and moving to new rules and regulations phase and firing on all cylinders like, like you know like we really want so alstom have also been kicked uh, by the russian war in ukraine uh, but they hold a majority stake in one of russia's largest rolling stock see we're going to use their lingo now rolling stock um companies however i think this is very much a short-term issue uh, that will be resolved in one way or another i don't see it hurting um alstom um you know over the long period if if this if this Russian rolling stock company goes to zero, um, so be it. Um, it's only what the stake itself is worth about 500 million euros. So at the end of the day, that's cash already spent. So uh, nothing we can do about that. The one of the good things I see is inflation really isn't a worry because Alstom are in the driving seat when it comes to passing on costs. Uh, there really isn't anyone, um, anyone that could compete um, with the stock size and scale with them. Uh, the main competition was Bombardier and... Uh, and that's gone. I think it's really exciting. I like the sound of this quite a lot, uh, to be honest. There's a few things then just to flag that you mentioned that uh, catch my eye a little bit. The first is that market cap. Not because it necessarily seems to me to be kind of low for the earnings, which you said was uh, price earnings of about 20 or so, and there's quite a bit of debt in there too. But $8.5 billion is is not a huge company in the sort of grand scheme of things. This is the kind of thing that... Different people categorise market caps and, and the sizes differently and so on. And I think I'd probably call that mid-cap. You'd call that small to mid? Uh, yeah, small to mid. Like um, yeah, I mean, that is roughly one year of revenue for them, uh, $8.5 billion at the moment. So, mm, And it's uh, one of these things where I, I guess it's kind of things that I was liking to look at not so long ago were things that have a fairly dominant position in a fairly smallish niche. Uh, so clearly this isn't a ginormous market uh, in that case if one of your biggest players has an 8.5 billion market cap but at that kind of size it means it can be kind of prohibitively difficult for anyone else to get in and start competing it's going to cost a lot to try and compete with them and what are you going to get in return probably not enough of a market to be worth both of you having a go in it hmm. so if you know anyone was to try and come along and tackle this i kind of like the look of their protective moat here i was also impressed by the point you said when i think about these kind of I guess you call that an industrial company. It's manufacturing, right? Very um, much so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I immediately start worrying here about inflation uh, and costs of, I don't know, steel, um, iron, all the lot going through the roof. Uh, if you can pass that on, that's pretty nice to see here. Um, I guess if I were looking at this, I would look a bit closer at that kind of debt pile, and I might well be looking at this uh, for what it's worth, because we both have ideas that, a price earnings multiple is interesting for comparing things, but it also leaves out an awful lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so a company like I mentioned earlier, Verizon, has a very low PE. There's good reason for that. Uh, it has a massive debt pile uh, that it's got to pay down. So if you bought this company, you would pay the market cap, plus you would also pay a huge amount in total debt over the top of it. That's a kind of hidden cost, I guess, of picking something up. Compare that to something like a Google that has absolutely no debt, so the uh, cash it makes is kind of yours to keep. And you start getting into um, kind of very different sorts of PE comparisons uh, in a certain way. So I guess with Bombardier, I'd be interesting. If you if you think we're going to kind of close to double the market cap again um, by adding in the total, or sorry, the net debt, 
I guess that's slightly different to if we're looking at it where it currently is. Either way, I mean, it feels like an almost kind of uh, one of your favourite companies, Steve. But the company that comes to mind here is a like waste management level of um, economic moat here. Yeah, I think I think that's that's pretty fair. Um, I think what you're dealing with here is um, somebody somebody whose biggest competition they they pretty much have a stake in now in in Russia. Uh, I don't think people are going to be rushing to Russia for uh, for rolling stock. Um, I think Alstom have pretty much they've pretty much solidified control over that market now. I mean, they're already supplying half the world's trains and have 70-odd billion of back orders ready to go. Um, I can't see an awful lot not to like about this. Um, I think it's something that's, that's pretty interesting to me. Definitely one to have a closer look at then, and definitely one that's interesting for the reason that it's it's cash generating now. It's not likely to do huge amounts of kind of organic growth. You might wonder, especially in a kind of economic slowdown, how many more trains the world exactly needs or is interested in updating. So this is a kind of another a steady thing, but it's you know, kind of more attractive than our, our growthy thing, Snowflake, which is sort of the idea that we've uh, what we've been talking about here in terms of cash value of money today. Uh, or value of cash today being higher, that still kind of plays out in a couple of these cases. So while we were seeing some interesting cases of crossover, right move coming down, so we now think it's, or I now think it's kind of cheap compared to Diageo, um, and Kering becoming a kind of a more attractive, growthier thing than Kimberly Clark, which is generating the cash it's going to generate right now uh, for you. Uh, this is one where things are perhaps looking the other way around. There are still attractive opportunities in cash today, Steve. Well, one of the things I was going to say is that, um, when in joining with Bombardier, they basically built the biggest uh, train R&D team uh, going. So they're, they're, they're by far their headcount in R&D is the biggest. And that has led to them uh, producing the first ever hydrogen fuel cell powered train. So if you think we're on a period where we may not be refreshing trains, whereas in the UK we're still moving to electric trains. Um, but in the EU, um, there could soon be hydrogen fuel cell trains if you if you believe that is the transition we'll be going to, especially as I think the EU is going to expedite its uh, trip away from Russian oil and Russian gas. Hydrogen is back on the menu and uh, Alstom, mm. Alstom is leading the way. Hydrogen's a really interesting sort of sector. That's been going in and out of fashion and is probably, I would guess, quite strongly out of fashion at the moment because a lot of those have their things earnings way into the... Uh, future. I haven't actually looked that bit up, but my suspicion is things would be along those lines. This takes us to pretty much almost an hour, Steve. There's just time for you to say rolling stock again, if you'd like. Rolling stock. Excellent. Uh, and that's our show. Um, happy birthday to Paul, belatedly now, but in time in the recording. Um, do drop us a like, do offer us your comments. Thank you. We always appreciate them. Um, listen to us on youtube and spotify you can watch us on those two have a listen to us on audible apple Podcasts, google podcasts wherever you get your podcasts uh i don't think facebook podcast is a thing anymore no. uh, i'm not sure we were ever really on that anyway uh but that's what we've been thinking about for this last week we think it's a really interesting time in markets hope you guys are doing well and we will see you next week <laughs>